first reading is from Luke, uh, chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that, re in that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is the Messiah, the Lord, this will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace amongst those whom he favours. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The next passage is from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this coming uh, Friday is just 24 hours after Thursday. There's a, there's a revelation for you. Um, it's just another revolution of 
the Earth on its slightly wonky axis without inherent meaning or significance. And yet you don't have to be a cultural analysis genius to recognise that more than most years, this Friday has an attributed meaning. We can't wait for 2020 to end. It has been a complicated ride from start to finish, and I wonder whether uh, this week there'll be more than the usual end-of-year reflectiveness, perhaps even substantially more than the usual intent to our New Year's resolutions. And it's in, in that spirit that I want to invite us to attend to our uh, text this morning, the second text from the start of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. Uh, it's written to Christians under pressure, serious, uh, and sustained pressure, a pressure that um, my guess is you and I can imagine, but not much more than that. Uh, the author says uh, later in the letter, not particularly encouragingly, that they've, quote, not yet suffered to the point of shedding their blood, uh, which carries with it the grim implication, of course, that it may not be very long before they do so. And in response to that pressure, it seems um, two things are happening. Uh, on the one hand, some, presumably those directly affected, are seriously considering ditching the Christian walk altogether. They're, they're genuinely contemplating abandoning Christ and hardening their hearts and falling away. But on the other hand, there's another group, perhaps on the sidelines a little, for whom the pressure is not quite so immediate, who, who see their friends suffering, who are not contemplating any grand move away from Christ, but just slowing down in their devotion to Christ, just drifting in their Christian lives, becoming dull in their understanding, wandering aimlessly with drooping hands and weak knees. And the author speaks to both of these groups. Now, I don't think that ours is an especially difficult time to be a Christian, but then again, it's not an especially easy one either. Uh, the pressures that bring weariness to our souls are not dramatic, perhaps, but they are nonetheless real. The contempt of work colleagues, and, and potentially even perhaps discrimination when promotion or bonus time comes. A kind of vague disinterest or uneasiness that people have around you because they know you're not into cancelling your friends or endlessly boasting about your latest technological acquisition or renovation. Or just the constant assumption of our society that Christianity is for fools, so that if you're a Christian, it's pretty clear then that you're a fool. The fact is that full devotion as God's children will cost. It will cost us. It will cost us time and money and energy denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. It doesn't happen by accident. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through the reordering of your loves all the way into genuine self-discipline and focus, paddling upstream against the tide of our culture. And that can be a pressure that makes you weary. An alternative begins to look attractive, namely to just drift a little, aware that there, there might well be more to the Christian life as it's described in the Bible, but increasingly becoming unsure as to whether you want to be that extreme, that dedicated, that holy. 
And underlying this uh, seems to me to be a fear, a deep-seated, almost primal fear, that God's way might not be the best way. That to walk in the footsteps of Christ will be to live half a life, that you'll find yourself regretful of what you missed out on. I spoke to a friend a little while ago uh, for whom this is especially acute. He told me that for the previous 10 years uh, he'd been attracted to other men, but that for the sake of Christ he'd not acted on that attraction. What does it take for him to keep believing that the way of Jesus is the best way for his life? Staring down the barrel of decade after decade of celibacy. Now, our situation, I think, turns out not to be so very different from the Hebrews. The details have changed, sure, but the structure is profoundly recognisable. And so to us as to them, the author gives us the tonic that we need for our souls. He paints a picture of the glory and power and majesty of Jesus. Listen to it again, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets... But in these last days, he's spoken to us by son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, this is a very dense uh, passage. It's easy to get a little bit lost in the verbiage and and actually to take away uh, only one thing from it, namely uh, the fact that God has spoken by his son in a decisive way and thereby revealed himself. And that is true. That is wonderfully, gloriously True, in the past, God spoke in in many and various ways, lots of different ways to our ancestors, if we're Jewish, that is. But now in these last days, he spoke to us by a son. And there is all the difference in the world between these two forms of speaking. The the prophets speak second-hand words, if I can put it like that. What they hear from someone else, they pass on, they're conduits. But the Son is the Word of God at first hand, directly, without any break in the communication. He is the reflection of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his very being. There is no gap to be crossed between the Son and the Father as there is between the prophets and the Father. He's God with us. Or as the Gospels put it, Emmanuel. And of course that has profound implications. If you want to know what God's mind is, you need to be in touch with the Son. This Son, far more than any prophet, from from any religion actually. Because it's in this Son that God has disclosed in first person his mind and his purposes. And that's going to mean you need to read and meditate upon the Scriptures which bring to us the words and deeds and ways of the Son. But there is much more here in Hebrews chapter 1 than simply revelation. For example, the, the key phrase in the entire section is probably in these last days. 
in these last... It's a phrase that ought to ring bells for us. The, the last days is the time of consummation. The time when God finally puts his plan into effect and wraps things up and gets the show on the road and fixes the mess up. From our perspective, uh, these last days have been going for a long time, the nearly 2,000 years, but that doesn't change the fact that these days are the last days before the changing of the ages. And so are a time of waiting, expectation. They're not days of desperation and uncertainty. No, these last days are days of clarity and peace since the decisive phase has passed. These are days to stay the course. In what sense are these the last days? Well, see how the author describes it. These are the last days in the sense that the final last day has been decided or the way the author puts it is that Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. Uh, we are regularly reminded that the biggest transfer of wealth in human history will take place uh, over the next couple of decades as the baby boomers leave their vast accumulated wealth to their various heirs, and you might even be one of them. Well, here is an inheritance to end all inheritances. Literally, Jesus has been appointed the heir, the inheritor, of all things. Not just some things, not just some people, not just some institutions and companies, all things in heaven and earth have their destiny and journey's end in Jesus. You and me and our work and our houses and our investments, it's been decided where they will finally reside. With Jesus. That's what makes it the last days now. Because the end point has been determined. There's no lack of clarity about where the whole show is going. There's no uncertainty about how it's all going to turn out. The score is 150 to nil. And there's just a few minutes to play. These are the last days. The victor is all but crowned. And what's more, the, the author's perfectly clear how appropriate this is. All things belong in his hands at the end because all things were created through his hands in the beginning. This one is the one through whom God created all things. But notice very, very importantly that this status of the son as the heir of all things is not a mere appointment. It's not the way the queen appoints a governor general. Now, even more than appointment, this is an achievement. You see in the second half of verse 3, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is why the appointment of Jesus as the heir of all things is the clicking of the clock to the last days. Because purification for sins has finally and been, has been finally and fully accomplished, and Jesus has sat down. Uh, the author's making reference to uh, a psalm, Psalm 110. It's one of the kind of core self-defining psalms used by Jesus to, to indicate 
his identity and mission. It's one of the early church's favorite psalms, most commonly quoted in the whole of the New Testament. It's where chapter 1 of Hebrews ends up, Psalm 110. The Lord saying to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of my enemies your footstool. And of course, what's crucial to remember is that the biblical image of sitting here is not the way that you or I might sit, which is a function of tiredness or even exhaustion. No, the sitting of the sun is a symbol of power and authority, of security and safety, of rule and majesty at the right hand of God. Purification for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Purification for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may have seen um, an oldie but a goodie, the movie JFK, uh, about the assassination of uh, US President John F. Kennedy. Uh, It's a bit of a conspiracy theory movie which focuses on what's called the crazy bullet theory, uh, which the uh, lawyer character, played by Kevin Costner, um, uses to try to discredit uh, the um, supposed assassination of Kennedy by showing that the movement of JFK's head when he was shot uh, indicates that it couldn't possibly have originated from the grassy roll, uh, gra- grassy knoll. And uh, do you remember this? Uh, there's this sort of slows it down. It's pretty gruesome. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. Well, Hebrews has its own version of that. You want to know what Jesus is about? Purification from sins. Seat at the right hand of the Father. Purification from sins. Seat at the right hand of the Father. Purification from sins. Seat at the right hand of the Father. Dozens of times in Hebrews. This is the great achievement of the Son through which he has been appointed the inheritor of all things. He's made purification for sins. He has rendered them, in effect, a thing of the past. Something washed away, gone, flushed down the toilet where they belong. Part of the former days, not these last days. But even more, this purification is not only the sense of Forgiveness, although it is beautifully that, but also purification in the sense of actually getting rid of them from your life. Precisely because the son is still on the job, seated at the right hand of the father, sleeves rolled up, working as hard as ever, interceding every day for you and for the world in these last days. That all of us would get with the program would see what has happened, that we would know what is true and so, as the author puts it in chapter 12, lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So the question I want for us to just take a little time to meditate on this morning uh, is this, how... How will having this reality scored into your soul prepare you for 2021? These are the last days. 
Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things. We know how it turns out because he's made purification for sins and is seated at the right hand of the Father. If you and I woke up each morning of this coming year with, with real clarity and conviction about that, how might, might our lives grow and deepen and develop? The, not, not the small things, the, what job you do and where you live and, and so on, the really big things in life. What sort of person you are. How compassionate your character is. Whether you're growing hotter or colder as a Christian. For me, four things come to mind. Uh, the first is this. Were I to more deeply grasp the reality that these are the last days because Jesus is now appointed the inheritor of all things through his great achievement, I think I would be a more joyful and a less burdened person. You see, here is the ultimate reason for a weary world to rejoice. Sometimes I wonder whether getting older is simply about the accumulation of more and more responsibilities, uh, study, job, extra study, marriage, kids, house, friends, committees, communities, and so on, and so on, and so on. And keeping all those balls successfully in the air can be exhausting and over the years corrosive of joy. As you see more and more things actually not go quite the way you didn't even realise you hoped. So that you become weary and less and less joyful. But when you look to Jesus, the one who has borne the ultimate responsibility, the one who has borne it to hell and back, who has taken those responsibilities to the right hand of the Father so that the bottom line is we are free. The future is secure in him. You know how your life turns out. You know how the universe turns out. It's inherited by Jesus. It's fulfilled and glorified and completed and perfected. And there is unbounded joy to be found in that. Uh, from time to time, a, a, a time travel movie comes out and the point is always the same. The future is what you make it. But that's not true. The future is what he has made it. He has been appointed the heir of all things. The future belongs to him and therefore to all who are his. And that puts all of those potentially joy-dampening weights and responsibilities and clashes and disappointments not, not to become irrelevant, not to become unimportant, but just into their right perspective. It's in his hands. Second, when the reality that there is one who has made purification for your sins sinks more and more deeply into your soul, it makes you a more poised and a less shamed person. Purification for sins means that you have been purified from all the things you do and say and think that are unworthy Unworthy of other people, unworthy of God, the things that contaminate and make filthy. You have been purified of them. 
And that means that they don't attach to you anymore. So that you are pure. I don't know if you have this experience. Uh, it's like fresh bed sheets that have been dried in the sun. Do you know that moment of getting into bed when the fresh bed sheets, they've been dried in the sun and they just feel and smell so clean and crisp and right. That's your soul. That's your conscience. Clean and fresh and full of the sun. It means that every accusation that others make of you, every attack that is launched on you, every moment of self-accusation and self-loathing, it can all just wash off you. You are someone for whom purification has been made. And so there is peace and poise and increasingly an end to shame. Peace when those attacks come, even when they point to something real. And you have to take them seriously and you need to do some self-examination and reflection and make some changes. They still don't get to your core. They're not permanent marker. They're just dry eraser ink on the whiteboard and Jesus made purification for sins. Constantly and instantly washing you clean. It's like an infinitely powerful spiritual set of windscreen wipers on your soul. It's gone. It's gone. And so you'll grow in poise, do you see? You won't get knocked about. You won't be puffed up when you do something right. You won't be crushed when you do something wrong. There'll be a glorious, gentle strength, a calm, humble, rock-solid confidence about you. Because Jesus has made purification of your sins so that you're pure. Third, as we more and more grasp with greater attention the reality that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, sustaining all things by his powerful word, uh, I, I think we'll become more and more prayerful people. Um, this actually is, underlies and, and flows from, in fact, the, these first two, doesn't it? Um, the way we can rejoice in the Lord, the, the expression of our peace in this world, is to make our requests known to God in prayer. With Jesus at the right hand of the Father, the throne of God is astonishingly, a throne of grace. We can approach the throne of God with boldness, as the author puts it in chapter 4, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And over the course of January, we'll actually be setting ourselves for this, looking at some practices of prayer to make 2021 an even more prayerful year. And finally, in, in living in the reality that these are the last days, I'm hoping and praying that I and we will become increasingly passionate about seeing people around us who don't know Jesus saved. For Jesus' sake, 
He's the inheritor of all things. For their sake, people who are not Christian need to come to Christ. He is their only hope. He is their true Lord. He is their creator, their sustainer, and their saviour. He is the one who has made purification for their sins because nothing else will purify them. And he's reigning at the right hand of the Father. And as that sinks uh, ever more deeply into our hearts, both as individuals and as a church, we'll burn with a spiritual zeal for the salvation of souls, for the glory of Jesus. And so let's, let's bring this to a point where, where in your life are you feeling something of the gap, the gap between um, this reality, that these are the last days because Jesus has been appointed heir of all things by having made purification for sins and being seated at the right hand of the Father. The gap between that truth, that reality, and the different ways that you make decisions or feed habits or let slide sins that all belong to the former days. It might be in an area of service, perhaps at church or in your community, that you know you're gifted for, but that you're just not sure you want to make the commitment. It seems like a lot of effort. It might be a habitual sin that you're resisting being purified from. It may be a relationship that's out of kilter, and you know there's still something that you might be able to do, but... Haven't, and now's the time to do it. Or perhaps it's just to pray over these next few days as the year comes to an end, uh, that most dangerous of prayers, Lord, show me how you want me to grow, whatever it takes. Grow me as your fully devoted child. Because he'll answer that prayer. Wherever the challenge lies for each one of us, uh, know in your heart that Jesus has been appointed the heir of all things, that the future is secure. It lies in the safe hands of Jesus who has made purification for sins and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so giving your utmost for his highest makes all the sense in the world. Amen.